My name is Jennifer Huddleston and I'm a Technology Policy Research Fellow here at the Cato Institute. I'm excited to be joined by a wonderful panel of experts today on this, the five-year anniversary of the enforcement date of the General Data Protection Rule, or GDPR, as it is more commonly known, um, which was a landmark European Union data privacy law that went into effect in May 2018. In the immediate aftermath of GDPR, we saw a lot of conversation around the impact this could have on the global data privacy debate, and particularly on the impact it might have on some of the US's leading technology companies, as well as smaller players, both in Europe and in the US. We've seen debates over whether or not this actually improved data privacy, over the impact that it might have on other rights, like speech and innovation as well as questions about what this means for the overall debate and the U.S.'s role in technology policy. As I mentioned, I'm excited to be joined by a wonderful panel of experts today. Starting from my left, we have Nathan Linfors, who is with InGen. We have Lee Matheson from the Future of Privacy Forum. And then at the end of our panel, we have Brandon Pugh with R Street. So just to get started, Lee, can you give us a, a brief overview of what do you think we've seen most over the last five years when it comes to the way GDPR has impacted the debate of data privacy? Um, well, for one, I think I would actually push back a little bit on the idea that five years ago marked uh, some sort of fundamental seismic shift in uh, the data privacy space. Uh, I mean, the underlying principles of the GDPR uh, can be traced, th that you see set out in Article 5 um, with the you know, principles of fairness and transparency and the, the Article 6 uh, lawful bases for processing and the sort of rights uh, that need to be uh, guaranteed to data subjects in Chapter 2. Um, this, this stuff wasn't invented out of whole cloth in 2012 when the GDPR was proposed or even in 2016 when it was adopted. Um, this stuff dates back to at least the Data Protection Directive of 96 and in many, in many ways I think even earlier to like the, the 1980 OECD uh, uh, FIPS that we all know and love uh, uh, so well. Um, so that's not to say that the GDPR doesn't represent any sort of change. Uh, certainly it's a, a landmark piece of, of privacy regulation and absolutely affected the operations of businesses all over the world in ways that the, 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 the preceding laws maybe didn't. But I, I think it's important to note that it didn't just you know, emerge out of a vacuum. Um, and noting that, I think that there's, there's also, uh, there should be a recognition that looking at the GDPR and looking at you know, both before and since the GDPR, so many other international jurisdictions have adopted laws that are structured in a similar, similar way. There has to be, there's some sort of consumer policy drive that's being responded to by regulations that are structured in this way. Um, it's, you know, not just technocratic policymakers pulling this stuff out of a hat. There's, there's interest in people ha like wanting to know what is done with their data, wanting to have rights about you know, either requesting deletion, requesting access, requesting correction. You see variations in this model around the world, but th there's a lot of fundamental structure that's the same. Um, I'm gonna look at my cheat sheet here. I think there's now 157 countries globally that have some sort of uh, data protection 
um, law on the books, and many of them, including many of the most recent jurisdictions to adopt those laws, have structured those laws along GDPR lines, where you have principles-based obligations, you have particular individual obligations to individual data subjects, uh, and then you have you know, record keeping, um, data protection impact assessments, uh, outlined roles and responsibilities for data protection officers. So I think, I guess, to answer what your original question was, the impact on businesses and the impact on other organizations that function as data control controllers or processors is a formalization of what these roles and responsibilities are. As more and more people and more, uh, you know, just out in the world and more and more organizations become aware that there are legal and regulatory obligations that go with processing personal data because the public demands that there be so. Um, I think that's my initial take. Great, well thank you very much. And you mentioned that there are 157 countries with data privacy laws. And one of those countries that's missing is the, the United States. We'll, we'll turn to, the, to that discussion in a bit. But before we do, I can if you're a, a small business looking to expand into an international market, those are a lot of different regulations to, to comply with. When GDPR first came on board, we saw a lot of questions about what this was going to do to competition, what the impact would be on the, the startup and small business sector. Nathan, I know you work directly with small businesses and, and with some of those smallest startups. What have you seen when it comes to the conversation around GDPR and small businesses and startups over the last five years? Yeah, well, first, uh, Jennifer, thanks thanks so much to you and to the Cato Institute for, for holding this uh, event today. Really uh, excited to be here uh, with, with my esteemed colleagues. Um, and yes, as you say, um, Engine, we're a nonprofit based here in, in Washington, D.C. We work with government and a network of, of thousands of startups across the U.S. to promote pro-startup, pro-innovation, um, pro-entrepreneurship policy. And, and one of those, those policy areas that, that we work on a lot is, is smart digital trade policy, make sure startups compete around the globe, um, and data privacy. Um, startups, to, to Lee's point, their users expect um, that, that their data is going to be protected and used in ways that they expect. Um, and, and startups want to, to respect that. Um, but, at, but at the same time, there's, there's a lot of regulation and, and government uh, that, that says uh, how and, and the, the manner in which that, that occurs. And, and GDPR, I think, um, in, in many folks' minds, and especially those in uh, operating in Europe, um, is, is kind of like the first uh, kind of brought this to the fore in, in, in more recent times, um, though, as you say, not new. Um, so let's just uh, walk through like initial impact reactions from startups uh, following GDPR's entry into force. Thousands of companies, large and small, left the EU market um, or used geoblocking technology um, to prevent EU users from accessing their services. So uh, we were just joking before this panel, you wrote an article and your friend in Europe couldn't read it because uh, the newspaper wouldn't allow EU uh, users, EU citizens, to, to access their, their paper's website. Um, but like while your LA Times and your West Elmses of the world have gotten on just fine um, here in, in the aftermath, many startups haven't returned to Europe um, or uh, maybe shut down altogether. Um, and, and in fact, you know, GDPR reduced exit of about a third of available apps in the app stores. You could argue that those are probably some of low quality and, and is probably a good result. Um, but, but probably not all of them, right? Um, and so there's, there's some loss there. Um, 
and and the the other side of this is, is some some people like to insinuate that oh well they left because they didn't want to comply with GDPR. Um, I'd actually argue business want to, businesses want to comply. We kind of started our conversation there, um, but you know the re the reactions really of, of leaving demonstrate that that they want to comply because you know the the, the economics um, laboring under the risk of giant fines. Um, you know the initial compliance cost of, of GDPR several hundred thousand dollars to, to for, for startups to, to several million for for larger organizations um, is is just too much for 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 you know maybe a startup that doesn't have enough users to justify um, spending that those costs so they leave or delay their their entry um, and I'll pause there so we can hear from Brandon. Great. Brandon, I want to turn to you. I mentioned that one of those countries that does not yet have a data privacy law, at least on a federal level, is the United States. I think five years ago, there was a lot of optimism that, that we might see a, a U.S. response, something that would perhaps have a, a more free market or, or a less regulatory approach to data privacy. In the five years since then, we've seen data privacy laws emerge at a state level. And now it seems like we, we may have a, a new um, amount of momentum for a, a federal data privacy law. This, you know, c in combination with the fact that we see in polling that data privacy kind of remains the technology policy issue that Americans are, are concerned about. And so I was wondering, what do you think U.S. policymakers can learn from five years of GDPR as they consider a, a U.S. federal data privacy law? Well, Jennifer, thanks for having me. And of course, the Cato, too. Um, beautiful facility, by the way. I was just saying, I, I've long followed Cato, but I've actually never been to, to your, your headquarters here, so great to finally be here. But, but to your point, let me start on a positive note. I think GDPR did advance the privacy conversation. There's a lot of lessons learned from it, and I think it did definitely it, it further the privacy field uh, between the number of vendors and number of people working in it, so I think that's good. But it is not the perfect law by any means. And I, I'm routinely asked to this day, should we just implement the GDPR in America? And that would be just the solution. My answer is no. Our, not to say there's not takeaways and key lessons learned that we couldn't adopt, but it ultimately is not the balance that I, I think, nor the Archery Institute thinks uh, is correct. And really what I mean by that is finding a, a balance between industry, consumers, and, and security. But to take a step back before I go into specific examples, um, I know some of the people in the, in the audience are already experts, but just to set the framework of what we have now and maybe where we would go. To Jennifer's point, state action is happening at a, an incredible speed. Matter of fact, actually quicker than I had thought. Not only will we have five state laws either go into effect for the first time or update this year, we also see a number of state legislatures uh, aggressively acting in them. It, it's, it's very likely we'll see maybe 10 or more uh, state level laws passing or being in effect this year. Add to that the desire by federal regulators to act in this space. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission uh, started their advance notice of proposed rulemaking with 95 questions, uh, regulating everything from targeting advertising to security. I realize that may be scaled back uh, or it may not go forward with all 95 questions, but that's still happening. Um, Meanwhile, we don't have a federal standard. Congress is still, uh, my, my view, is still very interested in it. Um, we see 
tremendous uh, momentum, especially last Congress with the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, or ADPPA, ADPA, however you'd like to say it. Um, and it passed out of committee with 53 to 2 votes. There's very few pieces of legislation that can get that type of the support. Not to say it was perfect in every sense, but I think it was a significant step forward. And it really aimed at compromise. Like, I, I think there's no bill that's going to be perfect for everybody, but I think seeing where that middle ground is is important. So as we move forward, what shouldn't we do that the GDPR did or what lessons learned? Um, I'll expand upon these as we go, but maybe just a, a few that stand out. I think ultimately, my view, maybe I'll sound a little cynical, with a lot of EU legislation is very regulatory and very enforcement heavy, and I don't think the GDPR is any exception. Um, I think with the number of fines that have come out most recently with, uh, with Meta the other day, which I know we'll get into, um, the goal should be to increase privacy, increase security, and increase the, the, just the general field, not to be a very regulatory enforcement heavy approach. And I think that is, uh, in my, my view, the, the direction the GDPR has, has unfortunately went. And I think that's important because when we think of what is the enforcement mechanism in America, do we want to see 4% uh, fines or do we want to see something that's more modest, maybe to still deter the behavior or to penalize bad actors, but not necessarily shut them down. I, I also think that we need to be mindful to, to, to your point that there are businesses of various sizes. We like to just lump everybody into just massive companies, massive international corporations. Of course they exist, but we also have many small actors, so I think any legislation we need to do here, I think we should make it more nuanced to go after the fact that we have many small actors in this space and their compliance capabilities may not be that average $1.1 million figure that we, we see often uh, the case. Maybe two more points. Uh, harmonization, uh, that is key, especially for the US. I think any action we need, to, it should be one federal standard. That way we don't have this patchwork that I was alluding to before. I think that, that is really hurting um, businesses. And more importantly, it's hurting consumers. Because more likely than not, you're, you're in this room and you live in a state that doesn't have a state privacy law. Whereas in GDPR, uh, many touted that as the uniform standard. It, maybe someone would disagree with me on this stage, but we've, we've seen variations. We definitely see different levels of interest in enforcement actions. We've seen different interpretations. So I think that is something to be mindful of as, as an American standard rolls out. And something, of course, that's near and dear to me is, is security, um, if protecting the data once it is collected. GDPR does have a section. Um, I actually think some of the more American proposals we've seen more recently have gotten the balance uh, better. Uh, and the why, why I say that is if you looked at the draft legislation from last Congress, it alluded to the fact that not everybody has the same data privacy and data protection needs. You may have limited amount of information, uh, but it may be very sensitive. But on the other hand, you may have a ton of information, but it not be very sensitive. You may have strong compliance and security programs in place already, but you may not have the capabilities. So those sound like just like legislative drafting considerations, but they are significant. Uh, and I think that's something to keep in mind as we you know, move forward in the U.S. Thank you so much. And before I turn to the, the questions I have for our panelists, um, I just want to give all of our panelists a, a brief moment if there's anything that, that someone else said that, that you want to respond to before we continue with, with our panel and our Q&A. Yeah, well, I'll underscore the, what uh, Brandon was just saying here on, on competitive impacts and disparate impacts on, on large and small companies. Um, just going back to, to GDPR, um, startups saw reductions in profit by more than 10% by, while larger companies were relatively unaffected. That's a competitive impact. Um, that's disparate between, between company size. Um, and, and then a few other ongoing impacts. Um, 
uh, U.S. startups foregoing EU market altogether or, or delaying a lot longer. It's not just GDPR. Um, I'd argue it's, it's uh, a regulatory environment writ large. Um, investment in startups with EU exposure has been negatively impacted. Um, so just one example, uh, there's a, a pretty innovative travel software startup in our network. Um, they, among other things, you know, help break down language barriers, help you have a better trip, et cetera, et cetera. But every investor meeting they take, they get asked uh, not, not just about GDPR, but about um, you know, things like the DSA and, and the coming AI Act. Um, and and that, that weighs on, on, on investors' minds, I think it shows that, and, but also they've, they've struggled to raise um, from folks that are, that are apprehensive about, about investing in folks with, with international, especially uh, uh, given the current uh, international environment. Um, and then uh, final thing I want to say is that they, in, in relation especially to uh, a national framework, um, right now I think uh, we see GDPR as a standard, but not, not necessarily in the way uh, that, uh, that Lee was talking about with the Brussels effect. We also see it as a, as a private standard. And, and what I mean by this is um, software as a service startups, as startups that, that mostly sell to business, uh, business software, um, selling to large multinational businesses, just like a lot of startups. I think something like 60% of startups are, are B2B SaaS companies. Um, they often have to complete a 30, third party risk assessment. Um, before they can, um, you know, provide their, their services and actually win a contract. Um, and oftentimes, large multinational companies, because they have EU exposure or might use the, the software there, they base their, um, or even if they don't, um, they base their uh, third-party risk assessment upon elements of the GPR. And because U.S. startups aren't necessarily familiar with this, um, if they haven't operated in the EU before or thought about this thing called uh, GDPR before, um, this can be a significant barrier. They lose out on opportunities or they spend a lot of time um, and resources up to something like 20% of the contract, um, usually 10 to 15%, but, but the, the highest number and in our latest survey of, of our startups was, was 20% of a contract uh, on, on these costs. So um, I think that could be solved by an, a, a national uh, a standard here in the US. Um, from both directions. One, uh, the large companies would have a, a US standard to look to and, and startups would be familiar with it. So um, just uh, uh, a plus one for uh, a US uh, uniform federal privacy standard. Yeah, um, I, I'd like to interject there on the end of that too, at, at the risk of sounding like uh, um, <laughs> uh, a repetitive uh, demagogue, <laughs> I guess. Um, I think that, you know, you. You can look at the development, particularly of the patchwork, as you've you referred to it. We, we love talking about the patchwork. My colleague, uh, Kira Lamont, has done a lot of work tracking uh, the development of state privacy legislation as the federal government continues to do or not do its thing. Although I know he hates the term patchwork. He He's does. like, it's <laughs> o way overused. So when I say it, I think of Kira. I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, but, you know, the reason that that's happening is the underlying demand from, I mean, voters. Uh, it, it, politicians wouldn't be interested in regulating in this space if the public wasn't interested in regulating in this space. And if the choice is between the patchwork, if that's what we're going to call it, or effectively, uh, aside from whether or not you're captured by a sectoral federal law, no rules, it seems like legislators are willing to jump into the mix as long as you know the federal legislative lawmaking process remains stuck. Uh, I think similarly federal regulators are relying on rulemaking authority for the same reasons. 
Um, uh, you know, I, I, I can't speak for the FTC, but uh, if you made me guess, I'd say that they would prefer to have uh, a new federal law that laid out um, more specifically and more recently their rulemaking authority in this area and maybe provided them with some more resources. But, you know, we don't have that yet. So now we have the basically the process that you described happening. Um, and similarly, to uh, address some of uh, what you said about the, the, the post-enforceability effect of the GDPR on, I guess, the SaaS community and particularly the startup community, many of which I think it's worth noting um, are you know, mobile application service providers or something like that. You noted uh, it was something like, a th uh, something like a third had fallen out of uh, uh, major mobile application distribution um, entities. One of the things that happened after the, the GDPR became enforceable was also that the developer terms for both um, the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store changed, and there was likely more private interest in requiring entities that had posted things to the store to comply with the terms that had previously existed. Um, prior to my, my role at FPF, I was, in, I was in private practice, and I can tell you that when we were doing compliance work with entities that were interested in that sort of business, um, there was a significant change in what the view of the, the platforms themselves was. Uh, like the, the Google Play Store and the, the Apple App Stores of, of the world and their relationship to entities listing their products on those stores. So I don't know if we're looking at a phenomenon that's solely just like the, the, the iron fist of the regulatory apparatus crushing innovation on the internet. Um, there's, I, there has to be some, sort of, so, some kind of middle ground in terms of the re regulatory space um, and I, I by, I'm no means up here as a, a GDPR evangelist claiming that it has, you know, no problems and there hasn't been uh, any, any issues since the regulation became enforceable. Um, there are a number of things that we can talk about later on that front, but um, I, I think it's the most, the, the, the most important thing that I would look at is the underlying public demand for something like what it does, I think also driving the Brussels effect that you referred to, <laughs> the adoption of GDPR-like laws in other jurisdictions. That wouldn't be happening if... You know, it's not s purely, I think, for the ease of pursuing adequacy findings from the EU Commission, although that is undoubtedly part of the consideration. Um, it's also because that's a model that has proven at least somewhat predictable in how it functions from a regulatory perspective. Um, As I say, I want to bring Brandon into this conversation no, no, just before, before we, we turn to, to some very interesting questions with, that will dig deeper into some of the, these issues as well. No, and I'll, I'll be quick because I know we'll get to it later. I, I would say this really underscores the need for the U.S. to take action now because absent that, I don't blame many companies for voluntarily following the GDPR. It's a strict standard, and chances are it's going to meet a lot of other international frameworks. The unfortunate is it's not a pro-innovation American view on how tech and privacy should be regulated. My, my personal, t personal take, at the same time, that's also the reason why we see federal regulators acting, because we don't have a standard. So I would prefer to see Congress in the driver's seat setting forth like what an American vision on privacy looks like, rather than the EU dictating what American companies follow in almost all cases, and in a federal agency taking step forward. Not to say there's not a role for the FTC. Like, I, I think they should have, they definitely have a role. But I think Congress should be dictating where the role is. And I think we saw that with some of these, you know, the, the, the uh, ADPPA last Congress. Congress gave them lanes to do rulemaking in and kind of said, we'll act on security, help flesh out these other areas. I think that's phenomenal. Congress sets the vision, an agency provides expertise in line with Congress, and there can be some oversight. 
yeah. one of the me, <laughs> one, one second jump in here before you Jennifer. I think that's exactly the the middle ground that that Lee was talking about, right? Is um, it's not so much GPR's fault as as the vacuum of a of a U.S. standard, um, in in my view, and I think for a lot of startups as well. So we've seen this debate over you know the Brussels effect and European standards versus American standards and in a number of tech policy issues, some of which actually do intersect with the GDPR and the data privacy debate as well. Um, I'm thinking about some of the very exciting technological innovations that we've really seen take off over the last five years. I know in 2018, we were seeing conversations about can blockchain comply with GDPR? But in the five years since then, and particularly in the last year, we've seen this rapid emergence of artificial intelligence and particularly of generative AI and some new questions raised around that. I know there were a lot of concerns about could ChatGPT comply with GDPR? I was curious, what are your thoughts on the way that some of these disruptive technologies may be impacted by GDPR? And on that underlying question of things like, can AI comply with these European standards? Um, I guess I'll, I'll jump in first. Um, I mean, one, uh, we for some of the, the, the newest stuff, I mean, if we're talking about uh, ChatGPT or its contemporaries and other large language models or other foundation models, it sort of remains to be seen exactly what the technical solutions are for enabling compliance with, with something like the GDPR, with, with uh, consumer rights like the right to be forgotten, interacting with you know, a massive training uh, data set that may include personal information. And like, how does one go about implementing, you know, unlearning something that a model has learned after a user submits, a data subject submits a valid uh, 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 right or request for deletion? Um, but I also, I, w I guess I would caution everyone from thinking that the sky is immediately falling. I mean, there is a risk assessment model built into the GDPR based on the purposes of processing. There's a process in place for determining, you know, what types of processing based on their purposes qualifies high risk, what sorts of documentation is necessary, what sort of transparency and disclosure options are necessary. Um, I do think we, we run into more difficult territory when we're talking about um, providing meaningful information about the logic involved, for example, which is a transparency obligation um, for automated decision-making under, under the GDPR. And what that means when we're talking about you know, uh, LLMs like, like ChatGPT, where we might not necessarily be able to do that in a way that's you know, human intelligible, um, that, that sort of black box problem is not new to LLMs, though. A lot of, a lot of AI uh, tools and AI implementations have that issue generally. And frankly, I think that's a problem um, to, st <laughs> to, to, to steal from an argument that a colleague, uh, Omar Tenay of mine, made uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, AI is not just a, a privacy problem. I mean, there's a, there's a bigger issue here where the, the purposes and the functions of these tools I mean, there's, there's competition issues, there's, I guess, like, issues of the effect on basic democratic principles in terms of the availability of misinformation versus interest in preserving free speech rights. Um, so for these new technologies, I, I don't think it's, it's just, just a privacy thing. Um, I do think that, uh, as uh, my friend here alluded to earlier, uh, the GDPR is not the only thing to look at in terms of the regulatory environment for... Uh, uh, AI technologies, particularly foundation models or, or other uh, large language models. There's also the forthcoming AI Act, depending on the scale of the entity's 
um, that are putting these tools into market. They may be subject to the, the Digital Services Act or uh, the Digital Markets Act in the EU. And you may see similar attempts, I think, emerge around the world to similarly, specially, I guess, put in a special regulatory category uh, entities operating at a certain scale, which I think is probably the the, the, if you break it, if you get really reductive about what the DMA and the DSA, uh, the DSA are doing, um, you know, when you have these gatekeeper entities or these very large online platforms, like that's the thought behind that from a regulatory process is that you're in a separate space once you're dealing with the data of 45 million EU residents than other enti entities in the market, which to both of my, my colleagues up here's points uh, is a recognition that, you know, there's a difference between a mom and pop SME and one of the largest tech companies in the world uh, in terms of what their relationship to regulators and governments should be. So that's a long-winded long way of saying, I guess, uh, it depends, as we lawyers love to say. <laughs> yeah, I, would, I would like to actually expand this question a little bit, too, for our, our other two panelists. You know, there's an interesting phenomenon where while we have these data privacy-specific laws and regulations like GDPR, we also see various data privacy or data security regulations pop up in kind of other places. And sometimes it seems like there could be potential conflicts between this. I'm thinking of something in Europe like the Digital Market Act's requirements with GDPR. Um, but we've also seen this with, with proposals in the US of, of questions of can state laws comply with each other, how different state laws may comply with GDPR, how different regulations proposed around topics like online content or youth online safety or AI may impact data privacy of, of individuals as well. I was wondering if, if Brandon or, or Nathan, I'll turn to you first, if you could speak a little bit of how do companies and consumers consider those potential conflicts and do you think there are potential conflicts between things like the, the DMA and the GDPR? I don't have much to say on conflicts, but um, in terms of the overall kind of landscape, uh, we, we touched on this earlier. I think um, the startups are nervous and, and investors in the startups are nervous. Um, and I think um, when it comes to, to learning from consequences of GDPR, which may be why we call this like GDPR at five, right? Um, I think some, some of uh, the European policymaking might be continuing a pattern of not unintended consequences, but maybe maybe disregarded consequences for for startups in particular um, when it when it comes to tech policy. So you know, last year startups saw this in the DSA. So um, the DSA burdens startups um, with obligations that today's incumbents never shouldered at that stage. Things like transparency reports, um, user appeals, and, and facilitating that those and, and more. Um, not saying that that they shouldn't have to figure that out. Um, perhaps they should, but but comparison for size. We talk a lot about disparate impact between large companies and small companies. Comparison for size. Facebook first released a transparency report in 2013. It was worth 139 billion then. Um, it first allowed users to appeal removals of photos, videos, and posts in 2018. It was worth 374 billion then and had 35,000 employees. Um, a startup with 50 employees. Um, which is every large or every startup large enough to to offer uh, user generated content uh, hosting in Europe has to do that and, and more under the GPA or, or excuse me under DSA. Um, so like GDPR, there's going to be 
some disparate and, and some competitive impacts here when we think about startup success um, in the European market, um, particularly for U.S. startups. Um, this is going to be a, a barrier increase and in, in kind of the, the continuing the pattern we saw with, with maybe with GDPR and, and maybe we might see with, with the AI Act as well. But Brandon, um, answer her question more directly. <laughs> no, no, it's not complex. I, no, I actually have uh, answers to both, and I'll try not to make this a monologue here. But let me first start with AI, and I say this knowing my colleague who is and a true AI expert is in the room, Adam Thier, but let me, let me uh, nevertheless copy him anyway. So um, I, I would say a something I push back with AI a lot is AI is not a new technology. It's been around for years. Matter of fact, we use it on a daily basis. I use it really just to get here using Apple Maps and Google Maps. Um, I think it's gotten a lot more prominence now because generative AI is part of the conversation, like these chatbots that we're seeing. That's the reason. And secondly, I also push back, not saying that either one of the, my colleagues here said this, push back against the notion that it's like a wild west and there's nothing. Um, there has been a lot of great studies and a lot of great research put into AI governance already, uh, both on the corporate side, corporations voluntarily studying this and holding themselves out to standards, as well as different trade associations and nonprofits have also put that out there. And then most recently with NIST. Uh, NIST has done a phenomenal uh, framework around AI building on their privacy and their cybersecurity framework. So there is, it's not like we have nothing out there, and I think that's the notion that a lot of people are, are unfortunately taking, is, you know, whether it be on the Hill or in the media. Um, and I think that leads to a point that between GDPR and whatever the United States does, we do need to take into account innovation. And both ADPPA and GDPR, they, they call them different things, but they essentially have different reasons and different bases for collecting data. And that's really key to make sure that whatever we do in this legislation is not hampering innovation of tomorrow. We may not know about a future need. I'm not saying we don't have any guardrails around data and its collection, use, and sale, but I would hate to see technology and, and business practices hampered because of something that is very rigid. Um, to, your, to, your, to your most immediate question, there are exceptions, but generally if I had to characterize a lot of the EU action, I would say it's, it's very regulatory based, very enforcement heavy, and generally produces less innovation. There's definitely exceptions to that, and I think, there, like, I, like I tried to start with, there's benefits to GDPR. But I would say to take the Digital Markets Act in particular, to connect it to cybersecurity, because that's ultimately where I spend a lot of my research interests, there has been definitely cybersecurity concerns around that. Um, a lot of it has been couched in the sense of, like, let's promote competition. But along with some of the specific provisions, which you can get into if there's interest, they lead to data potentially being disclosed. Uh, it leads to hampered cybersecurity practices. So those are things that we don't necessarily think of, and I, and I like to think, even like antitrust action in the U.S., I don't think that's the intended goal ever, but we do need it to be thinking through these unintended consequences. So one day earlier this week, I opened Twitter, and in my trending was hashtag GDPR. As much as I would love to believe that that was because this event had so much desired <laughs> attention on it, the, the reason that hashtag GDPR was in fact trending was the announcement of what is the largest fine to date in an action against Meta, more commonly known as as Facebook, um, that was both a was both a retroactive fine that was the largest fine that we've seen, but also has many other questions raised, particularly around the status of EU US data flows. 
Um, we've seen in the five years since GDPR the death of what was known as Privacy Shield, which had was what had allowed a lot of these data flows to occur in the past. We've seen an executive order that, that seems to attempt to, to remedy this situation, but we're now in this kind of point of uncertainty, and particularly given this most recent action, I was wondering if our panelists could speak a little bit about what, if any, concerns are there currently about the ability of US EU data flows for companies of all sizes, and what, if any, framework is needed in that regard? Uh, well, this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart, uh, so I can, I can at least start us off. Um, for one, I'm going to shamelessly plug some of our own work here. Uh, we actually, earlier this year, um, published a comparative report looking at one of the main uh, transfer tools in this space, specifically the transfer tool that the recent um, enforcement action against Meta uh, found their use of to be invalid, which was comparing the EU's standard contractual clauses with uh, other uh, contractual documents that have been put forward by other regional entities, um, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations and uh, the Iber Ibero-American Data Protection uh, Network. Um, also both have model data transfer contract clauses. But I guess to set the stage for this discussion a little bit here, um, I, I think really underlying this long-running uh, series of uh, enforcement actions and lawsuits about lack of enforcement actions and decisions by the CJEU is there are two fundamental disagreements that are happening. One, there's a disagreement between the EU and the United States as to uh, whether or not the United States' laws permitting government access to personal information held by U.S. companies meet the necessary and proportionate uh, language that is, is required by EU data protection law and, and ultimately, according to the CJEU, um, the European uh, Charter of uh, Fundamental Rights, um, and then also within the EU, whether or not the same is the case. I mean, you have, I would say, not even Privacy Shield is the first step. You, you, you go back to the one that we always forget about, the, the Safe Harbor Agreement. Everyone says the new data privacy framework is Privacy Shield 2, and no, I think it's Safe Harbor 3. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and this predates the GDPR significantly. I mean, the first, if we call them the Schrems cases after uh, uh, Max Schrems of... Uh, and OIB, um, the first lawsuit predates GDPR. It goes back to uh, allegations that still against Facebook, but that transfers to the United States uh, violated obligations under the Data Protection Directive. Um, and that's what brought down uh, the Safe Harbor Agreement, uh, and then its predecessor, Privacy Shield, now this new one. Um, uh, you know, I've been, uh, and, and me and my colleagues have been uh, uh, plugged in uh, at various levels of the just sort of ongoing negotiations around the new DPF. Um, and the, the, funda the fundamental objections that the CGAEU had, if you boil them all the way down, kind of deal with, one, whether or not U.S. Uh, government access to personal information is necessary and proportionate, and two, whether or not there is a right of redress available to EU citizens that uh, they, they need to have per the, the charter and per the GDPR, and whether or not the new executive order and its accompanying Department of Justice regulations creating the Data Protection Review Court um, will satisfy that, I think, is an open question. I think we, we already know that given that there's been a draft of an adequacy decision already promulgated by the Commission for Comment, it's likely there will be a finalized adequacy decision based on what the, United, the steps the United States has taken, and that as soon as that happens, there will be another lawsuit uh, by NYOB. Mm -hmm. So the real decision will happen. 
after that uh, complaint and subsequent suits and the whole procedure is followed and we get back in front of the Court of Justice in the European Union. And the, the real test will be whether or not that body thinks that the changes from where we were with the privacy shield and the ombudsman that sat in state and the procedure that was available then versus what has been established now is sufficient. Um. Uh, no, I, do, you, do you want to go first? Sure, I'll just uh, just add to what you're saying and, 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 and uh, to paraphrase uh, James Carville, it's, it's the spying, stupid. Um, <laughs> Like with the recent Meta case, for example, um, I think you know elements of the, the U.S. national security apparatus are mentioned like 200 times, um, and FISA 702 is is almost half of that. Um, U.S. surveillance, as as you just just alluded to, contributed to the downfall of Privacy Shield and Safe Harbor before that. It's go it's going to be at issue um, when Trems challenges the DPF um, uh, later this year, and then when that works through over the next several years. Um, Safe uh, Section 702 is up for reauthorization this year. So to, to answer what policymakers maybe can do, maybe this is an opportunity to, to satisfy some of the, the not only the civil liberties uh, kind of concerns that that civil liberties community has, but perhaps also kind of the secondary trade impacts that that we see. And it's really really important to solve for startups, whether it's through you know uh, the the DPF being into place um, so that uh, there's a legal transfer mechanism that can be relied on relied upon by startups um, to facilitate uh, US EU trade um, you know something like 70% of the privacy shield participants were small and medium-sized enterprises um, and startups faced uh, a lot of a lot of costs after you know July 2020 um, when when uh, privacy shield was invalidated they had to change to standard contractual clauses. They lost uh, contracts and clients in, in the meantime. Um, and, and SECs aren't exactly uh, cheap to, to, to facilitate. So um, I'd say, you know, for folks, uh, oh, I'll lose my direction here, for folks up there <laughs> um, that, that care about entrepreneurship, care about startups, um, yeah, folks in the Commerce Department need to be, you know, working with their, their EU colleagues to, to make sure that the, the adequacy decision and the DPF is put into place as, as soon as possible. But there's a role for Congress to play here, too, whether that's with 702 or, 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 or other putting those mechanisms in, EU, uh, in U.S. law in, in other ways than through an EO. Yeah, I would say, um, unfortunately, it does seem like we're in this reoccurring cycle where we find a solution, then it's challenged, then it goes away, then we find another one, challenged, it goes away. It's this never-ending cycle. I, I do think that's ultimately bad for business, and that's the problem is there's limited certainty, even especially where we are now. Like, I think it really puts, starts the clock to finalize this process because we could see a very real scenario then a period of months where data flows just stop. Like I know a lot of people say maybe I'm an alarmist on data localization, some of the threats around there, but that's a real risk. And to the points that Nathan shared earlier, like there's a risk that maybe companies will just stop doing business in certain areas or just have entirely different business model. It'll become a specific product for, for one company, or one country rather. And I would say like, I'm not saying this is easy to solve. I mean, look at the 702 alone in the US. There are so many different opinions around how that should play. On one hand, we want to completely stop 702, have it not even be an investigative tool. On the other hand, let's just keep it as it is and maybe even make it even have more ability. And then there's this you know, hybrid, maybe keep it, 
but reform it in some modest ways. And we, we don't have agreement on there. So it's not surprising that the EU looking into our apparatus here would be questioning that. And a fair point, and this is a criticism I actually hear a lot by EU colleagues, is that you don't even have a US data privacy law. So how are you in a position to tell us that you're adequately you know, protecting data? I know a lot of the concerns are more on the national security side and they're kind of maybe conflating the two, but it is a valid critique. To, to build on uh, Brandon's point there, uh, I, I think that there is um, a significant element of that, uh, particularly in if we s just look at the, uh, the statement released by the European Parliament uh, uh, last week, I think, the, as they uh, came to uh, uh, also, uh, you know, lots of busy things happening in that body. Uh, they also f came to their, uh, their compromise text for their version of the AI Act for trilogue negotiations. But um, talking about potential adequacy uh, and U.S. actions in relation to the sort of ongoing data transfer problem, one of the things that they cited as a concern was the lack of a U.S. federal data privacy law. Now, even if Congress passed something like that, well, that wouldn't likely also contain 702 amendments and what goes on with other key, you know, core national security authorities like EO 12333 is up to the White House, um, but I, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's not something that we can ignore as far as domestic policy in this country goes and our relationship to not just the EU, but increasingly other countries. You know, I don't know if this is a next year problem or a five years down the line problem or a 10 years down the line problem, but a lot of other countries that have Brussels affected their way into a national data protection law that looks like the GDPR and contains cross-border transfer restrictions or requirements that other jurisdictions be assessed on the basis of uh, adequacy or essential equivalency or whatever the, the, the phrase of the day is, I mean, that may start coming up. You know, it's not just a transatlantic question. There are a lot of jurisdictions, particularly a lot of growing major economies in the global south. Uh, you know, for example, the LGPD in Brazil, a huge, you know, the largest economy in South America. Uh, it, there is a similar provision. There, and other economies elsewhere, in Southeast Asia and Africa, uh, those jurisdictions are adopting similar data protection rules, and those concerns are not going to evaporate. I know there are plenty of things we could still <laughs> talk about. We haven't even gotten into, you know, half of the questions of, of trade-offs with, with these kind of regulations or, or things like that. But I do want to bring our, our audience into the conversation, both online and, and here in person. If you're on, joining us online, you can join the conversation and submit questions for our panelists, either directly on the event webpage, Facebook and YouTube, or on Twitter using the hashtag Cato Technology. And while uh, if you are here in person, if you'll raise your hand, we do have a microphone going around so that those people online, um, as well as our panelists, will be able to hear you. But I'm going to start with a, uh, a question from online. This comes from Will via social media. And I, I think it's a good reminder of the consumer experience of GDPR. Um, has anyone estimated how many hours, days, or years humanity has lost clicking through GDPR notices like cookie pop-ups? I, I, I ask this, I, I don't expect any of our panelists to necessarily have a, a calculation, although I'm very interested if they do. But for some people who might not be as familiar with, with the kind of legal questions we've raised about GDPR or, or the, the policy questions, what has has the average American consumer experience of, of GDPR over the last five years? I have a, a fun, possibly apocryphal answer to this question. It references what is now a, a number of years old, but a Carnegie Mellon paper that, um, and 
I'm pulling this off the top of my head, so you please don't burn me at the stake if I'm wrong. But uh, uh, there was an attempt to calculate the amount of time that it would take to actually read at an average reading speed of all of the terms of service agreements and privacy notices that the average American interacts with over the course of a year. And it was something like, like 16 full 40-hour weeks. It was something ridiculous. Um, and I think that that demonstrates, I mean, there is a question, for one, to the cookie notices question. There's, that's several re uh, regulations interacting. That's GDPR, that's the e-privacy directive, which may one day be replaced by the e-privacy regulation. Who knows? <laughs> um, but there's a question of, like, are the privacy notices for every consumer, or are they for consumer advocacy groups and nonprofits? And if someone is curious about something that is happening, the ability to go back and look at a disclosure that affects them. Um, you know, I will fully admit as a, 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 a person who's done privacy work as a legal professional for my entire career, I don't read most privacy notices and most terms of service agreements, but uh, sometimes I do. And you can always go back and, and look at them. Um, and so I, I, I imagine that's the, the common consumer experience. I mean, we all know, like, the, the notice and choice model is like the emperor is naked of the privacy world. Like, most people don't actually read through each terms of service agreement with great detail. Um, so maybe less time than Will on uh, <laughs> Twitter thinks has actually been spent reading these things. Um, but that, I don't know that that invalidates their utility entirely, to have uh, regulations in place that require them to exist. Yeah, I think Will asked that in jest, I, or, <laughs> or, or I hope he wasn't asking for a serious answer because we probably don't know. But he, I think he hits on a fundamental truth uh, uh, for, for startups about um, the, the consumer experience, and that is when you add a layer to actually accessing your service, the amount of users that, that stay with your service drop. Um, and so we talk about, I'm, I'm going to be a broken record, you're going to say, this is the guy that talks about disparate impacts between large companies and small companies. You know large companies, you've used them before, you're willing to click the boxes and read the notices. You come up, up, up across a startup that provides a service that sounds like maybe you'll use it, maybe it'll be beneficial, but then you have to click through all these things and read this notice. Um, you know, startups in our network, when they implement these sorts of measures, they see their conversions drop by 50% or more, just the amount of people that initially were going to, you know, clicked into the thing and then decided, you know what, never mind, I'll go use something else. Um, and so that's, that's an unfortunate consequence for, for startups, and I think that's something that we have to think about. When you say, when you say that the, the emperor has no clothes, well, we should, we should figure out uh, how to solve for that. Yeah, I would say it's, this is like a great uh, privacy job interview question. Kind of like, you know, how many golf balls fit in an airplane? Like, this is like, I'm stealing this question. But I, what I would say is, uh, you know, I, I shouldn't even admit this, but like, I, I get so annoyed by them. It's not even a matter of clicking deny or accept now. I'll just accept the screen being gray and having the pop-up just stay there and <laughs> scroll down and read the context. Maybe that's like, I don't know, maybe it's just easier to click deny. But um, I would say this is a good point for, for America and the United States uh, Congress to consider as we're implementing it. Is that what the model we want in the United States, or we would rather look to a more structural and, and solution? Not to say there's no value of, of, of notices. I think there is some value. but should we follow the GDPR's model? I, I would say no. I'd like to see if we have any questions in our, our in-person audience. As one of the average uh, consumers, you folks 
probably today don't have time to get into it, but I'm always struck that of all this sloppy data protection that's out there, it gets into the criminal part, and I'm not even quite sure what the dark web is, but I know that much of my data is there, and I think a lot of it got in there by the big hacks at the basic credit companies, and more recently, T-Mobile, people like that. Uh, but a couple of questions that are, may sound naive. Um, I'm curious, I don't remember hearing ever even though I get warnings every day on my internet about all the dangers that I have to do to protect myself, I don't know whether ever who goes to jail for this. I'll bet you not one person from Meta went to jail for that huge fine. Uh, and uh, how do we look into that thing? And then the other question is, how big is the industry that's out there protecting us from all this danger that I am supposed to give money and time to every day when I look at my internets? And how much are they actually lobbying to keep the mess going and blocking Congress from doing effective protections for both individuals and especially small businesses, which you made a good point, and even large businesses? Uh, so I, I, if you don't mind, I, I love your questions. Uh, and I actually get asked on a daily basis, I run a cybersecurity team. Why does the cybersecurity team own the pr data privacy and consumer privacy issues? And I think this is exactly why, because you know, it's one thing to regulate around collecting data, but we need to make sure the data we do collect is secured. Because if it's not, we see adversaries using it, like China, just as one example. We see uh, criminal actors uh, and a host of other issues that can lead to identity theft, future crimes, future cyber incidents. So it's, it is a mess. And I think that's the real risk. If you are not in a regulated industry like you know HIPAA with healthcare or GLBA with finance, largely speaking, you don't have rules surrounding how your data has to be secured. So you can free, freely collect it, and there's no safeguards. There are some exceptions. The FTC may come after you if you've said that you are protecting it in a way and you're not. You don't follow reasonable security. But generally speaking, there's no baseline. And I think that is, to me, was the selling feature for a privacy law in the U.S. is that there would be data security safeguards and what they call administrative, technical, and physical. All that meaning is you do have to have measures in place that are appropriate to safeguard the data you do collect. Uh, because the fortunate reality is data breaches have went up um, and unfortunately they, be, they are becoming more severe and we've seen this actually happen in real time um, just with Russia. I know this isn't a Russia-Ukraine panel, but we've seen Russia, maybe both sides, but mainly Russia has been amassing this super sensitive data to target individuals in the conflict, going after for either disinformation or for physical violence. So this data does have value outside of just being annoying because somebody's spending you spam send mail. So I see it's an urgent issue. Um, and uh, I can piggyback a little bit onto what Brandon said. Uh, to, to your specific experience, um, I, I'm revisiting my former life as a, a private practice attorney doing privacy and cyber work. Um, did a fair amount of incident response. And the way that our system is structured is there, under state law, which usually governs data breaches unless you're in a federally regulated space, typically there may be you know, civil liability attached to an entity that's behaved negligently in securing its data. But in terms of who goes to jail for this, we only attach criminal penalties to the attackers, to the advanced persistent threats, to the criminal actors who are actually, you know, trying to break into the data. And generally speaking, those, I mean, those people are often not in re reachable places. It depends on the, it depends on the problem, it depends on the breach, but, you know, this is the difference between a state data breach law that may have a negligence requirement, may have a personal damages uh, element to it if a, a company has behaved badly. Uh, and the, the Federal Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is what would actually apply criminal penalties to unauthorized access to a protected computer system. That's, I know for many people, um, likely including yourself, that's an unsatisfying answer, right? Um, and that's why I think a, a lot of 
uh, the more recent federal proposals have included uh, not just sort of more classic data privacy and data protection issues like consumer right of access, consumer right of correction, but also provisions dealing with security obligations. Um, appropriate technical and organizational measures is the phrase to steal from the GDPR, um, but uh, as uh, my colleague here alluded to, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a major concern. And I, I, I don't, uh, as you mentioned, I don't think it's going anywhere. There's, once your data's out there, to some extent it's out there, and there's only more data breaches. Yeah. So. No, great point. I don't yeah. want to, sorry, I didn't want to cut you off. Oh, no, no, no. no. Real quick, I didn't want to fully discredit, like our law enforcement community is doing a w wonderful job. Like, it, it, like we do see convictions occurring by Department of Justice against Americans, but, but to your point, it is largely foreign actors. So it's, this isn't in jest. We see cases being brought against foreign, like, individuals that are in China or in Russia carrying these out, and they are convicted. But then, like, the, the logical next step is, okay, well, they can't come to Disney World. I think that was, that was how the media put it. Because if they don't come back to the U.S., China's not going to voluntarily give these people up. So is it even worth it? You know, I, I'm, I think there's, it's good to go through the legal process, but it's not giving the satisfaction a lot of people want. We are running short on time. I know this is a, a conversation that we could, could keep going and many, many other questions to get to. Um, but just to, to wrap up, I'd like to give each of our panelists, you know, one minute to, to ask, you know, five years from now, if we were hosting GDPR at 10, <laughs> what do you hope would have changed and what do you hope would still be the same? And I'll start with Nathan. All right. Well, I mean, I hope that in five years we're not talking about 10 years of GDPR, but maybe, I don't know, like four years of a U.S. standard, um, <laughs> celebrating the ways that, that maybe we actually got this right. Um, that's, that's pretty pretty optimistic, but I think that's something that needs to happen for, for startups like those we work with. Um, a, a uniform federal privacy framework that, that works for startups is something that's really needed. That's, what, that's one that creates uniformity, promotes clarity, limits bad faith litigation, accounts for the resources of startups, and, and really recognizes the internet interconnectedness. Um, we talked about large, uh, large entities and small entities. It re really recognizes the interconnectedness of the, of the internet ecosystem. Lee? Um, although it would force me to change the focus a lot of, my, uh, of a lot of my current research and writing, I really hope that in five years from now, maybe we will have finally put this EU-US data transfer question to bed. Uh, and we will have arrived at a diplomatic and political solution that uh, everyone on both sides of the Atlantic is, if not happy with, uh, can't, we can say that it uh, represents what looks like a good political compromise where everyone is mad. Um, <laughs> so uh, that, that would be my hope for the, for the next uh, five years. Yeah, I actually largely agree with both of them. I think I would just really further the point home of why we need a U.S. data privacy and security law now. Um, like industries at a loss, consumers at a loss, securities at a loss, our international standings at a loss, innovations at a loss, and so on without this law. I know Congress is putting a lot of time and effort for it, but I think it is time we finally move it forward. And hopefully we'll be reflecting on what does a U.S. privacy law look like five years later in five years. I know a lot of this conversation has been a bit retrospective, looking back on, on what's kind of happened in the aftermath of GDPR. I look forward to continuing the conversation with our, our panelists and with our audience in terms of what we may see looking forward, both in terms of U.S. and EU actions. If you could please join me in thanking our panelists for, for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for having us.